As Juan Perón rose to governance, first through a military coup and then later a presidential election run which was fueled by his imprisonment, Juan Perón was forced to define himself. In 1948, he gave a speech entitled, What is Peronism? Even his explanation doesn't help to fully pin down an ideology which was named after him. The speech reads like this. Some of our legislators have asked what Peronism is. Peronism is humanism in action. Peronism is a new political doctrine which rejects all the ills of the politics of previous times in the social sphere. It is a theory which establishes a little equality among men, which grants them similar opportunities and assures them of the future, so that this land there may be no one who lacks what he needs for a living. Even though it may be necessary that those who are wildly squandering what they possess may be deprived of the right to do so, for the benefit of those who have nothing at all. In the economic sphere, its aim is that every Argentine should pull his weight for the Argentines and that economic policy which maintained that this was a permanent and perfect school of capitalist exploitation should be replaced by a doctrine of social economy under which the distribution of our wealth which we force the earth to yield up to us and which furthermore we are elaborating may be shared out fairly among all those who have contributed by their efforts to amass it. That is Peronism. And Peronism is not learned nor just talked about. One feels it or else disagrees. Peronism is a question of the heart rather than of the head. Fortunately, I am not one of those presidents who live a life apart, but on the contrary, I live among my people just as I have always lived, so that I share all the ups and downs, all their successes and all their disappointments with my working class people. I feel an intimate satisfaction when I see a workman who is well-dressed or taking his family to the theater. I feel just as satisfied as I would feel if I were that workman myself. That is Peronism. This ideology that proclaimed a desire for leftist uniformity regarding social classes while simultaneously representing right-wing corporatism would go on to plunge Argentina into an era of chaos. As we witnessed a rising democratic hero, live long enough to become the villain. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of Argentina's most infamous dictator, Juan Perón. His policies. Juan Perón won the democratic election of 1946 with the support of 55% of Argentina's electorate. Future elections wouldn't be nearly as close, in part due to the fact that this would prove to be the last Argentinian election where only men were allowed to vote. His popular newlywed wife, Evita, championed women's suffrage and ran the nation's first large-scale female political party, aptly named the Female Peronist Party. In the 1948 election, he would take 66% of the vote. Although women were able to vote in 1948, many stayed home for their inaugural opportunity. That changed in 1951, with 90% of women coming out to vote in their first election. 65% of that new vote broke Perón's way. Women were the story of the 51 elections as they also managed to get seven female senators and 24 female deputies into office. The relationship between the world's two genders was front and center during Perón's first term. Channeling his inner Justin Timberlake, Perón promised to bring sexy back. As part of his policy prescription for the people, he repopularized the tango and once again legalized prostitution. The supposed world's oldest profession had been banned during the infamous decade. The reversal was one of his first prerogatives. 
1943, the then Colonel Perone had funded studies which claimed that the withdrawal of sexual relations had, quote, damaged the brains of military men, permanently destroying their sexual desires. As is always the case, there are many layers to peel back on a decision like this. Peeling each layer reveals more about the core personality at the center of the personality cult. The center of Perone's core was rotten, or at least it was to Patricio Siminato, a research fellow at Buenos Aires Consul Nacional de Investiones Scientificas. Simonetto claims that Perone and other members of the GUO were staunch homophobes. As was typically his way, Perone took a carrot-and-stick approach to what he perceived as a problem. Sticks were thrown up against openly gay men. The local government in Buenos Aires prohibited gay people from voting. Openly gay men were outlawed from serving in the military in 1951 and police forces were known to continuously raid gay bars throughout Argentina. Across the country, gay men were presented as sexual predators and a threat to innocent youth. The carrots were the legalized brothels. Perone argued that the lack of a legal outlet had incited men to engage in same-sex encounters, which later resulted in growing numbers of sexual assaults and rapes of women. Obviously, this conclusion is preposterous, and our slightly more modern society is able to reject these conclusions on face value. But the result of these policies was the further entrenchment of the patriarchal structures of the state, despite the fact that Juan Perón rose to prominence largely because of women. Evita is foremost among those women. But even she has had to have revisionist historians save her reputation regarding the treatment of the LGBTQ community. Her near-universal status as a supporter of the gay community has come largely via the women who have portrayed her on screen. In most movies, she is surrounded by gay men, but in real life she ushered in the era of Peronism, something that Osvaldo Bazan, the author of Historia de la Homosexualidad in la Argentina, claims is absolutely homophobic at its core. Like Evita's historical record on gay rights, Peronism suffers a series of internal contradictions. Peron himself gave a speech listing 20 virtues of his movement. Number 17 states that as a social doctrine, justicialism presides over an adequate distribution of social justice, giving to each person the social rights that he is entitled to. The rule had two clear flaws. First is the use of the pronoun he, something that likely wasn't noticed in the early 1950s, but also something that an individual who grew up surrounded by Latino machismo would have placed over his better half. Secondly, you can't adequately distribute social justice to all when you think that a large portion of your population doesn't deserve to have the basic dignity of their natural lifestyle. A number of these contradictions came from the lack of an origin point for the movement that seemed purely based upon Perón himself. There are a number of influences on his ideology. The military is foremost among them, as Peronism demands a sense of discipline and groupthink. While individual ideas can be expressed, disagreement should not be tolerated once the course of action has been determined. Catholicism came next. Ideas of social justice bled over from the church in his efforts to help the working poor. He included the church in his government by promoting the inclusion of religious education in all of Argentina's schools. Virtue 18 in his speech tells us that as a social doctrine, Peronism presides over an adequate distribution of social justice, giving to each person the social rights he is entitled to. The movement absorbed fascist ideas from his time in Mussolini's Italy, from which he has a clear hatred for Bolshevik ideas. Yet he also incorporated a number of ideas which elevated the poor to the highest in society, sometimes in ways that Joseph Stalin would have never cared to. Virtue number four claimed that there is only one class of men for the Peronist cause, 
the workers. And number five follows it up with a very Bolshevik claim of, in the new Argentina, work is a right which dignifies man and a duty because it is only fair that each one should produce at least what he consumes. Historian Monica Esti Rain points out Perón's attempt to reconcile these contradictions by creating a third position in the political realm. She writes that Perón rejected the two orthodox political economic positions of the time, capitalistic liberalism and Marxism, and proposed an alternative of his own instead, the third position, equidistant between capitalism and communism, while simultaneously opposed to them both. He presented his concept as part of a new national project that included the social integration of the masses and the transformation of Argentina's economic infrastructure. In his words, we have a third position in which we do not wish the individual to be exploited in the name of either capital or the state. We want the individual not to be an instrument serving the appetite of capital or the state. Virtues 13 through 16 attempt to pave this new path, stating the problem in number 13 that a government without a doctrine is a body without a soul. That is why Peronism has established its own political, economic, and social doctrines, justicialism. Number 14 serves to establish its originality. Peronism is a new philosophical school of life. It is simple, practical, popular, and endowed with deeply Christian and humanitarian sentiments. I'm not sure about you, but typically something that is simple doesn't need a speech highlighting its 20 virtues. One also has to wonder how popular something is when it is the one proclaiming its own popularity. Peronism would go on to permeate and penetrate all aspects of Argentine life. From the church to the public schools, from the football pitch to the radio waves, becoming the hegemonic discourse through which supporters viewed their world and dissidents shaped their critiques. The patriarchy was expanded by the state, promoting a nuclear family with men as the breadwinners and women as mothers, which is where the portrayal of gay men as social deviants came in. Women were required to simultaneously maintain their roles as mothers, workers, consumers, and beauty queens, all while participating in politics. Eva Peron was their role model, and her popularity was astounding. She even had her own city created, Evita City, located in the greater Buenos Aires area. Her namesake goes beyond even what Stalingrad did for Russia's Man of Steel or what the numerous Alexandrias did for Alexander the Great. An aerial view of Ciudad Evita reveals Evita's profile, with her head facing right and her hair tied in her signature look. Today, around 70,000 people literally live in her image. Peron quickly consolidated his power through the practice of government patronage. Patronage is a preferred corrupting method in both democracies and dictatorships. He appointed loyalists to the positions of governors, deputies, and senators. Once in office, they had to vote with the party in order to remain in power. Unions were folded into the CGT, Argentina's main trade union, which was already run by his loyalists. The courts were packed with his judges, after he had four of the five sitting Supreme Court justices impeached for going against the will of the people. He handed out hefty military contracts and provided generous salaries to any portion of the workforce that he depended upon. Few questioned these decisions in real time, particularly because real wages went up 20% during Perón's time in power. The increase wasn't because of his policies, however. They largely went up because post-war Europe was once again ready to purchase large quantities of Argentina's meat exports. While the people were counting their good fortunes, Juan Perón was attempting to control every part of their life. This is the inherent danger of populism, 
which can be defined as a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. The popular thing is rarely the right thing to do. Representative democracy exists entirely on the belief that the majority must have an individual that serves as a check on the majority. While populists seemingly give the people what they want, they regularly do so merely to further their own empowerment. They also tend to elevate a group that has been on the political periphery, thus angering the establishment. Perón dealt with the backlash as an authoritarian would. During his first term in office, he created the Secretariat of Information to censor journalists. Newspapers that criticized his regime were prevented from accessing paper to print their news on. Even if they had something to say, they couldn't distribute their truth to the masses. Perón even used government resources to buy up newspapers, magazines, and radio stations to use as platforms for launching his own propaganda. This served as a continuation of policies which had begun with the 1943 coup. By 1946, when he took power, 110 publications had been forced to close. Soon, all Argentinians had to be card-carrying members of the Peronist party just to keep their government jobs. Criminal laws were passed in order to discourage dissent, and only strikes that the government deemed legitimate were allowed to commence. Argentinian historian Felix Luna is among those that is perplexed by the immediate and unnecessary suppression of thought in Perón's Argentina. Luna insists that, I don't understand why Perón insisted in imposing a repressive apparatus when no doubt the 1946 elections had been a high point in an electoral career that continued to rise. Some offer a psychological explanation attributing to him an authoritarian Nazi mind. I do not think that is enough. Luna continues, What motivated Perón, despite his personal innate optimism, was that he thought popularity would be exhausted, and he would need his repressive apparatus at some point in time. Luna's conclusion points to a deep insecurity that he hadn't risen to power based upon his merit, but instead through fortunate circumstances. Still, a beloved democratic figure immediately oppressing his people's free will stands out as odd, and frankly, a little psychotic. All of his actions seem directed towards maintaining his place in charge. He led reforms of the Constitution, allowing the president to run for multiple terms, even though he claimed at the time that he was not interested in running for re-election. Spoiler alert, he was lying. The new constitution was passed without any opposition support, as they withdrew in protest over the perceived fairness of the process. The inherent power of the state was dramatically increased in the document. The state now had a right to intervene in all economic matters, including foreign trade, imports, exports, and price-fixing. Argentina would go on to use these powers to nationalize all railroads and public utilities, making all sources of energy national property, which couldn't be sold by anyone but the state. The government used the Eva Perón Foundation to channel all social welfare programs to the people of their choosing. Although this action was taken to work around the protest of union supporters, it served to further grow the legend of Evita. He didn't know it at the time, but this elevation of Evita would come at the eventual expense of himself. The Eva Perón Foundation worked to better the lives of the underserved. This made it a perfect vehicle to further their agenda based upon populism. They built houses for the poor, orphanages, and state-of-the-art elderly homes. Worker resorts and hospitals saw shovels immediately go into the ground. Doctors were paid to go out into the countryside to detect cases of malnutrition and disease outbreaks before they happened. Mass vaccination campaigns were enacted. 
the foundation would go on to hold more than 200 million in assets and employed 14,000 Argentinians permanently, including its own staff of priests. Everyone, whether they wanted to or not, contributed to society's well-being. The first few weeks of all pay raises were forcibly donated to the foundation, and the trade unions contributed to the foundation three man days of salary for every worker that the union represented. By all accounts, and to her credit, Evita Perón was never a mere figurehead for the organization. Part of her lasting appeal among the people of the world was the fact that she took time to read all of the letters that came asking for assistance. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Don't Cry For Me Argentina is littered with allusions to how much she truly loved those that she represented. Dr. Victoria Anna Goddard writes that in the midst of apparent chaos, Evita listened to whatever was asked of her, from a simple demand for increased wages to an entire industry-wide settlement and along the way a request for a place for a family to live, furniture, or a job in a school even food. Evita was inexhaustible. She kept the momentum of this show running for hours, often well after nightfall. Suffer, little children, and come to me, she told them. Evita Perone quickly became known as the Lady of Hope, the Mother of the Innocent, and the spiritual leader of the nation. This doesn't mean that she was without controversy, however. Evita helped the poor with one hand and used her other to pick out the latest expensive couture dress. Her family's website dedicated to her memory sums up her life faithfully, stating that Evita was not a saint, but, like most of us, a flawed human being. Yet for seven years, the time that was given to her, she sacrificed her health, her private life, and many hours that should have been dedicated to sleep because she loved her people. Her popularity was greater than that even of her husband, or would have been at least if she had not publicly subordinated herself to him at every possible junction. She told others that she was a mere bridge between Peron and the masses, and that I am only a simple woman who lives to serve Peron and my people. But the reality was that she was a key part of Perone's foundation. Soon, her husband tied his own popularity and legacy to that of his wife, who was a rising star who seemed to be able to do no wrong. Time, it would appear, was the only enemy that she could not vanquish. Her luminous star began to dim permanently in 1952. The prior year, she withdrew after her husband had floated her name as his vice president. The mere fact that she was on the ballot was another sign that Juan Perón recognized that his own popularity had been surpassed by that of his wife's approval ratings. She had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and would pass away only a few weeks after the election of 1952, one in which her husband had just barely survived politically. Her death began the disconnect between the populist and his people. Also during that year, cracks had begun to show in the Argentinian economy. Perón's populism had gotten in the way of the market. Salaries were being kept artificially high, and prices were manipulated to remain artificially low. This is a classic example of a populist getting in his own way as it doesn't take an economist to see the problem inherent in this system. Higher salaries pushed producers' costs up, but artificial price ceilings meant that they could not raise the price of their goods to maintain their profit margins. Without that profit margin, the producer would just stop producing the product. There were those who would continue to produce, but then illegally sell them on the black market in order to make a profit. Thus, even though wages were going up, the workers' lives were not better off, and now the voice of their champion had been silenced. 
At one point, Eva Perone had stated for the record, In government, one actress is enough. Would Juan Perone be enough to fill the huge shoes left by his Evita? Instead of redistributing resources to the poor, he grabbed them for the government. In other words, he doubled down on his market meddling. One of Perone's solutions to the looming economic crisis was to nationalize private businesses that were failing. But that meant that the industries, which continued to operate at a loss, had now just become a drain on state expenditures. In 1952, facing a massive annual deficit, Perone attempted to reverse course and began to seek out foreign investments even accepting American capital, which blatantly sought out the exploitation of Argentina's soil. This began the second of two five-year plans for Argentina's economy. The five-year nod was a direct reference to Soviet-style industrialization. There were five measures of success for the economy during the period of 1951 to 1955. First, an increase in foreign investment, no matter where it came from. Secondly, the growth of heavy industry. Third, a removal of most of the subsidies and industrial loans, even though the businesses weren't close to ready yet. Fourth, partial restriction of public goods that the people were buying, which would shift the burden from the government to private entities. Fifth and finally, Argentina would promote trade by buying crops and selling them abroad to finance their own industrialization. It was a good public-facing plan, but in private, Perón went into economic survival mode, willing to do anything or contradict any past policy view that he held just in order to hold on to power. The economic hardships that followed in his populist wake brought forth political legitimate opposition and worker unrest. But Juan Perón survived the 1952 elections. The Catholic Church had come to his aid explicitly instructing their adherents to vote for him. His declining political power, an economy whose main feature appeared to be embedded inflation, and the cutting of his wife's connection between him and the people were all seemingly unrelated factors which contributed to the dramatic fall of Juan Perón. Vida was only 32 years old when she passed away. She had done a tremendous amount of good in those few years on earth and would assuage the worries that she expressed publicly when she said that my biggest fear in life is being forgotten. Her aging husband had attached his own star to that of his wife and the nation mourned her loss with him. She had played the role of a form of failsafe or backstop for the president. When something went wrong, he could count on the popularity of his loving wife to rally the people to his cause. Her unflinching loyalty to him and their love for her meant that he was never in true danger. In the immediate aftermath of her death, Juan increased the cult of Eva, pouring more money and power behind her political and social justice foundations. The Vatican has received over 40,000 requests to canonize Evita to sainthood, and as the love for her poured out from her people, the Catholic Church in Argentina grew annoyed that it wasn't receiving the credit that it deserved for Juan's 1952 electoral victory. Keep in mind that the president had made a living out of a scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-yours philosophy. Only now, Perón wasn't paying attention to the church anymore. The book of James warns about the role that jealousy can play in one's downfall. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. Frustrated with their perceived lack of a prominent role in governance, the Catholic Church began to organize itself politically, and Perone, while still grieving the loss of his wife, began to view it as a threat. Professor S.D. Rain points out that the two ideologies, Peronism and Catholicism, directly competed for the hearts of the people of Argentina. Conflict between state and church soon became inevitable, and soon both sides were launching public verbal attacks. In the last months of his presidency, Peron canceled the various privileges that the Catholic Church had enjoyed, 
and published a series of laws designed to push the church out of its central position in Argentine's life. He abolished compulsory Catholic religious instructions in state schools, which he had instituted himself at the beginning of the presidency. He had introduced a divorce law, went beyond legalized brothels and legalized prostitution itself, and topped it all off by proclaiming the separation of church and state. The church responded in solidarity with bishops Manuel Tato and Raymond Nova, speaking out against the president during the Corpus Christi processional. In retaliation, Perón demanded that the Vatican recall the two church leaders. Taking a cue from the leader of their cult, violent Peronists attacked and burned churches in Buenos Aires. The untimely loss of his greatest political weapon, his charismatic wife, symbolized the collapse of the entire national coalition that had backed him since his original imprisonment. Some point to the fact that he gave U.S. Standard Oil a contract to explore, drill, refine, and distribute any oil found as the straw that broke the camel's back. As the economy declined and his support dried up, he relied more and more on suppressing the people that had raised him to power. Multiple attempts on his life, including a bomb detonating in 1953, and another one two days after the Corpus Christi attacks in 1955, eventually convinced him to resign the presidency. Oddly enough, the opposition refused his offer of resignation, to which he said, To violence we will reply with greater violence. With our excessive tolerance, we have won the right to suppress them violently. And from now on, we establish as a permanent rule of conduct for our movement. Any person who in any place tries to disturb the public order in opposition to the constituted authorities, or contrary to the law or the constitution, may be killed by any Argentine. The watchword for all Peronists, whether as individuals or within an organization, is to reply to a violent action with one more violent. And when one of ours falls, five of theirs will fall. One month later, his forces fell and he was toppled by a military junta composed of Catholics from both the army and navy. It was a repeat of the exact same way that the GUO had come to power just 12 years earlier. This time it was him fleeing the nation, choosing Paraguay for his exile. Brian Mimiak, Daniela Sens, and Unique Price list eight reasons why Perón's government was forced to abdicate. First, he had relied on mere popular support rather than well-established policies. Popularity ebbs and flows, and who is popular today likely won't be by the time anyone listens to this podcast. Perón himself had feared this fate from the beginning. He had implemented authoritarian means in order to overcome a precipitous decline in his popularity. Secondly, he didn't stick to a clear formula for Peronism. This led to obvious contradictions within his ideology as he regularly solved problems with policies that went against what Peronism had previously taught. Third, his centralized authoritarian model had exhausted itself. Argentina went through a number of military juntas which loosely adhered to democratic ideals. Perones merely lasted longer than most. In 1955, it was time for the cycle to begin anew. Fourth, he used repression and violence to maintain himself in power. Most dictators have revealed that this is an unsustainable model, particularly when you pick a fight with the church, who has spiritual weapons at its disposal, as well as the military, which has missiles at its disposal. Fifth, his economic policies failed. After nine years in power, the people were less receptive to his sit tight, I have this under control message. Six, his propaganda only seemed to be effective with his own supporters. It had an inability to turn his enemies to his cause. Thus, he never gained much more support than he had at the time of his initial democratic victories. 
If you ask the people today about what they think of Juan Perón, you receive answers that range from the second coming of Jesus Christ to the Antichrist incarnate. The seventh reason that his government was forced to abandon their nation was the fight that he picked with the Catholics. His anti-religious campaign caused his earlier support to splinter. Because his propaganda had failed to bring others to his cause, his populist movement could not withstand the loss of any support. Last of all, he decided to give up power at the end, first offering to resign before later fleeing the country. Had he decided to stay and fight harder in a way that Bashir al-Assad has chosen to fight in Syria today, the outcome may have been different. For whatever reason, Perón wasn't up to the task of staving off a military coup that had the support of the people. He was 60 years old at the time of his self-imposed exile. And that exile would last for 18 years, the majority of which was spent in Madrid, Spain, which was currently under the rule of Francisco Franco, a fascist whom Perón greatly admired. While he was away, the new government of Argentina worked overtime in order to solely his name, although this wasn't something that was all that difficult. But how they treated Evita showed how far the sitting government would go to bury Peronism. The new government removed the deceased former First Lady's body from its prominent position of public display. It was all in an effort to erase Peronism from the public consciousness, and since Eva was the most powerful positive symbol of the era, she had to go. Instead of just cremating the body, however, the government created a disturbingly elaborate system that involved decoy wax bodies designed to confuse her supporters. Disgustingly, they first hid the real corpse in a van that would move around the country in order to avoid detection. Then they stuffed her in an office building. Two years into this twisted game, the government made a secret deal with the Vatican in order to bury her body under a fake name in Milan, Italy. Nineteen seventy one, sixteen years after his exile began, saw an attempt to normalize Argentina's politics, and the government rescinded the order that had outlawed Perón's political party. They, however, made a rule that only individuals living in Argentina could run for political office. They also returned Evita's body, which was dug up once again from its rest, this time in Milan, and given to her husband in Madrid. Once it arrived in Milan, Perón's third wife was put in charge of creepily brushing her hair and cleaning the body so that it could then be put on display in their dining room in Madrid. I've only been married once, but I can't imagine that wife number three's dream is to have the beaten up corpse of her predecessor looking over their shoulder while you dine on some delicious Spanish pork. The New York Times wrote an article in 1964 about Spain's penchant for collecting Latin dictators. At one point, the Dominicans Rafael Trulio, Cuba's Fulgencio Batista, and Argentina's Juan Perón were all guests of honor in Madrid. The article openly expressed worry that Perón was planning a return to power across the pond. The article came about a decade earlier as that feared return date would become reality in 1973. Argentina was in the midst of yet another economic downturn, and the Peronist party had been allowed to continue operating two years earlier in 1971. Despite their founder's exile, Peronism was as strong as ever in the Pampas of Argentina. His party would prove victorious in the 1973 elections and immediately paved the way for their leader's return. More than two million people sought to welcome him home at the airport. The scene was that of a conquering hero who hadn't conquered anything returning home. The movement was anything but celebratory. In what became known as the Aziza Massacre, 13 died and hundreds were injured. The figures are questioned by nearly every historical source and most point to a likely higher death total. The North American Congress on Latin America described the scene on a fateful and chilly day, 
telling us that at about 2.30 p.m., one large contingent approached the speaker's platform from the south along Highway 205. As they were about to pass under Bridge 12, automatic rifle, machine gun, and shotgun fire exploded from security atop the overpass and the speaker's platform. Targets included anyone who looked like a Zerto, a leftist anyone, that is, with long hair, jeans, or other signs of Argentina's defiant youth. Someone ordered the release of 18,000 doves, 1,000 for each year of the general's absence from Argentina, which were meant to be freed as he spoke. The shooting stopped as fluttering wings filled the sky, but in a minute they were gone and the firing resumed. As many as 300 people were shot, stabbed, or clubbed to death by the men on the platform. Amazingly, the clash at the airport was between the left-wing and right-wing supporters of Perón, again serving to prove that it's quite confusing on which side of the spectrum Perón ends up on. There was no anti-Perón faction to be found near the airport. In the fallout of the massacre, the top three members in the line of political succession all resigned, paving the way for a new election. This time, since he once again lived in Argentina, Juan Perón was on the ballot. He won with nearly 62% of the vote, proving that his popularity had only grown during his time out of power. Isabel Martinez Perón, his third wife, was named his vice president. Thus, he fulfilled a previous wish that had been to include Eva within his presidential administration. This time, the mission was to set up a political dynasty that would shelter his legacy. The two had met during his exile in Panama. Isabel has such a unique story that she probably deserves her own episode. Like his prior two wives, she was considerably younger than Juan Perón, 35 years younger in this instance. She also had been born into a lower-class family in northern Argentina, but her situation worsened further when her father passed away while she was young. To help the family make ends meet, she dropped out of school during fifth grade and began working. When she hit the age of 20, she began the life of a nightclub dancer. It was here that she took on the stage name of Isabel. She caught the eye of Perón and became his personal secretary, even relocating to Madrid with him. Upon her husband's death, she became the first female president in Latin American history. Unfortunately, her administration was incredibly corrupt, and she was eventually exiled to Spain, much the same story as her husband. Restored democratically again to the presidency, Juan Perón immediately attempted to reclaim his previous magic. He quickly took a hold of the economy by promoting a new social pact between workers, employers, and the state. Like before, however, inflation, shortages of basic necessities, and the rampant success of black markets frustrated his efforts. Factionalism within Peronism bubbled over and frustrated everything that he wished to accomplish. In his previous rule, he had been able to direct Peronis versus Anti-Peronis. Now he was facing a triad of groups. The Anti-Peronis remained as angry as ever, but now they were joined by leftist and rightist Peronis. In his previous terms, he had been afforded the luxury of time in order to suppress dissent through control of the media and outlawing of opposition parties. He had had time to offer carrots. For the 78-year-old, time felt in short supply, however, and this version of Juan Perón took some shortcuts, namely in the formation of the AAA, or Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance. The special death squad was first aimed at a sitting senator who had publicly frustrated the president, and although their first bombing attempt had failed to kill the senator, the AAA would go on to claim the lives of nearly 1,000 Argentinians. To show how much the 18-year exile had changed Juan Perón, he placed the Minister of Social Welfare in charge of the death squad. That Minister of Welfare had been the position from which Evita had earned the love of her people. 
Now, social welfare was more often than not administered via a machine gun. Perón's third term as president was severely limited by his advanced age and deteriorating health. At least one account makes the claim that he was senile by the time he had been sworn in, and the CIA claimed that he frequently alternated between states of lucid thought and senility. He suffered from heart disease and passed away on July 1st, 1974, just a year and a half into his term. His wife took over, but was deposed in 1976 via a U.S.-supported military coup. Just another one in the long history of Argentina's military juntas. She would spend the next five years in prison before being released to Spain. Perón's legacy is an interesting one. First, he is a dictator who rose through democratic means, but showed his true authoritarian colors via his methods of rule. He was a leftist who produced progressive reform and had perhaps the most progressive government during the 20th century in Latin America. He massively expanded trade unions, even if they had to be loyal to him. He made both social security and education universal, Low-income housing projects were created, and workers were guaranteed paid vacation time. Even better, half of the cost of vacations were paid for by their employers. Argentina's citizens had access to worker rec centers that included massive first-class resorts. Each worker had the right to stay at one of these resorts for 15 days a year, at the cost of a mere 15 cents per day. Working students were even granted time off before every major examination. Medical care was paid for, and mothers received a paid maternity leave that covered three months before the birth and three months after. Economically, he lowered foreign dependence and helped to build up domestic production through monopolizing domestic industry. This monopolization allowed him to keep export prices artificially high. The result was the complete temporary paying off of Argentina's foreign debt. He never achieved his dream of autarky or self-sufficiency. To continue to prevent foreign dependence, he initiated 45 major hydroelectric projects and created Argentina's own iron and steel industries. Although it had been unheard of before Perón's rule, Argentina began making its own farm machinery, planes, and cars. But he did all of this after he outlawed all political parties that opposed his viewpoint. He hid his dictatorship behind an intricate system of government patronage and cronyism. Those that opposed him disappeared or lost their jobs and any ability they had to influence others. He outlawed a fair and free media, only giving access and literal paper to the newspapers that covered him positively. The popularity of his wife and access to the benefits of the progressive reform that he passed allowed individuals to overlook the evil that was happening behind the curtain. It is notable that Perón's propaganda never broke through to his opposition. Those that were duped remained deceived, and those who weren't were frustratingly sidelined without the ability to sway others. Under Perón, Argentina became divided into two diverging segments. As a populist, he was willing to shift his ideology to that of the masses, and his wild swings between leftist policy and fascist ideas from the right still complicate our understanding of Peronism. It also internally divided his forces, leading to violence after the end of both his second and third term as president. His decision to authorize death squads at the end showed that he had fully lost control over his own movement. It also revealed that his movement was always first and foremost about himself. That was the lie he had told the longest, so long that he had begun to believe it himself. He began his speech that detailed the 20 virtues of Peronism with that lie proclaiming that I am not one of those presidents who live a life apart, but on the contrary, I live among the people, 
just as I have always lived, so that I share all the ups and downs, all their successes, and all their disappointments with my working-class people. That is Peronism. He was replaced twice in military-led coups. In the final aftermath of his rule, the military junta would go on to launch what became known as the Dirty War, a targeted campaign to wipe out dissidents. In seven long years, around 30,000 Argentinians were killed or forcibly disappeared. Torture, as it had been during Perón's rule, was used with regularity. In 1982, inflation reached 900%, and the Junta attempted to wag the dog by invading the Falkland Islands, provoking a war with Great Britain. Although he wasn't the one serving the meal, Juan Perón had set the table for this chaos. He also didn't leave much behind. He had successfully delayed some of Argentina's economic problems, but he had never fixed a single one. His rule and legacy are ripe with contradictions. Although he undoubtedly helped workers, he never broke the power of the landowning elite. He was a populist who lost popularity. He was a democratically elected dictator. He was an anti-imperialist who occasionally handed out lucrative one-sided contracts to foreign powers. And Argentina's economy has been a roller coaster ever since, including their 2001 debt default, the world's largest at the time. Lee Alston and Andres Gallo, writing for the National Bureau of Economic Research, claim that the lasting legacy of Juan Perón is one of political and economic instability. This is first and foremost because he put himself ahead of any and all institutions of Argentina. His decision, for instance, to remove Supreme Court justices who stood in the way of his agenda removed a critical check designed to prevent tyranny of the minority. His ability to buy off his opponents through cronyism removed another institutional pillar to check excess, and his successful destruction of a free press ensured that his dirty tactics could remain hidden from the public view. The combination allowed him to play the role of a magician, regularly encouraging the audience through sleight of hand to look at his beautiful assistant Eva while he was performing whatever underhanded trick he had up his sleeve. I'll let Alston and Gallo conclude for us, as they write that, like their conservative predecessors who engaged in electoral fraud, the Peronists believed that the ends justified the means. The policies of the Peronists further eroded the possibility of achieving a government grounded in the belief of a system of checks and balances. The aftermath has been economic and political instability. Argentina is a dramatic lesson for developing countries. It was on the path of solving the coordination problem in which the political actors refrain from acting in their short-run interests. During the Great Depression, Argentina strayed from the path of consolidating democracy within a legitimate system of checks and balances by engaging in electoral fraud. Unfortunately, Argentina has yet to find its way back.